Good morning. It's good to be here today. I am um, uh, always thrilled uh, to be able to have the opportunity to uh, bring the Word of God to you in preaching. Uh, my name is Joey. I'm one of the elders here. If it's your first time uh, here at Summit, um, Jamie is uh, the one who would typically be doing this on a Sunday morning. Occasionally, uh, we get to share the, the preaching ministry, and it is a great joy of mine to be able to do so. We continue our study in the uh, book of Genesis. Uh, we're coming now to Genesis chapter 3. So this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to just read for you some portions of Genesis chapter 3, and then we'll, we'll just dig into it together. Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to begin with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I'm going to fast forward to verse 21 for this morning. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray together. Father, your word is powerful, um, sufficient, and this morning we confess Your word is true. Your word is true in everything that it claims about you. It is true in everything that it claims about your son. It is true in everything that it claims about the Holy Spirit. And it is true in everything that it claims about us. And so, Father, help us this morning to submit ourselves to the authority and trustworthiness and truthfulness of the word. And may our hearts be bent to it. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So, tough passage, right? Um, We all know the story. We all know the story of the fall. We've heard about the fall. And this morning, my charge is to begin the preaching of this segment of Genesis, which is the fall, right? 
So I want to give you a little bit of layout of what we're hoping to do, what I'm hoping to do anyway. Thankfully, um, I mean, most of you know me, right? I, I tend to preach long, I've been told. Um, so Jamie got smart and he gave me two weeks. So um, you'll get a lot for two weeks in a row, basically. No, um, I am I'm going to try to break this down. And the way I'm going to try to do that is, is today we're going to talk about the fact of the fall. Okay. Um, next week, we'll talk about the implications of the fall. So today we're just going to look at Genesis. We're going to take Genesis for face value. We're going to ask the text the questions that I believe the text is prepared to answer and intended to answer. And, and we're going to let the text teach us about who we are um, as fallen individuals and some of the schemes and craftiness of our enemy. And so uh, we're going to look at crafty manipulation. We're going to look at rebellious indulgence. We're going to look at a shameful response. And then finally, in the end, we're going to see a gracious provision and prevention. That's kind of the layout for us this morning um, as we go through this first part of Genesis chapter 3, the fall. Next week, the implications of the fall. And then the third week, Jamie will still be in Genesis 3, and he'll come in to clean up the mess that I make in the first two weeks. So um, hopefully he'll listen to this and hear that. And, um, so the fall, it's, it's, it's a critically important doctrine, right? We have to get this one right, okay? It, it, it's been gotten wrong in, in the past. It's been uh, abused in the past. It's been softened in the past uh, by, by different groups. But the fall is critically important that we understand it and that we uh, hold it accurately. Why? Because the fall, fundamentally, the fall teaches us of who we are, right, as children of Adam and Eve. The fall teaches us of our nature in Adam and Eve. And if we get the fall wrong, then we're going to think wrongly about ourselves. We may think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think if we don't understand the true impacts of the fall. If we don't understand the, the fallen, depraved nature that we inherit from Adam and Eve, then we may think that we're inherently good. And if we think that we're inherently good, we may begin to think that we can work for and earn our way unto heaven, that we deserve a relationship with God. And maybe we mess up here and there, but we are good enough to fix it if we misunderstand the implications of the fall. If we don't understand the deep depravity that the fall has brought to us even at the moment of conception, as David says, then we will miss the point of Christianity altogether. So is Genesis important? Yes, Genesis is important. As we've seen already, God has proclaimed himself to be the creator of all things, ex nihilo, that is out of nothing, that there was, there was a time when there was nothing and God existed. And God, out of this nothingness, created all things by the power of his word. And he created those things, and he gives us the story of that creation. And there was uh, sunset the first day. There was sunset the second day. There was sunset the third day. And so he gives us the story of the creation such that at the end of it, he says, and it was good. 
And so we understand that everything that we've learned in Genesis so far is this beautiful picture of the creation of the world and the creation of mankind by the gracious and powerful act of a good God. That's important. And now we come to Genesis chapter 3, and we are introduced to a new character that we've not seen before, the crafty serpent. He says now in verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. There's some dangers here, and I'm not going to try to unpack all of those dangers and try to tell you what those dangers are and how to avoid them. I'm just going to tell you there are some dangers here, okay? And we've already learned it in Genesis chapter 1, but we're going to learn it again in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 1, we're, we're tempted to ask questions like, how did God create the world, right? And scientific age that we live in wants to answer those questions. How did God create the world? Or when did God create the world, right? And we want to try to unpack all that and figure it out scientifically. But the point of the text is not to answer those questions, right? The point of the text is to tell us who created all things, right? Not how, but who, right? And And so... We, we learn that there are things that our mind wants to ask of the text that the text never intended to answer. And so the danger is racing down that road and letting your imagination run wild, letting your rational thinking try to figure it all out, rather than just sticking to what the text has to offer, right? So one thing we're going to do is we're not going to press the text into areas that it doesn't intend to go. Okay, And one place that you may be tempted to go in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, with this serpent that's more crafty than any other beast of the field, you may think, where did the serpent come from? Right? What is the origin of the serpent? Well, I can say this much. Um, God is the creator of all things. Okay, Done. That's all that we have in the text. The, the, the text here, the point is not to get us to think about philosophically where is the origin of the serpent or even, honestly, what is the origin of evil. That is not the point of this text. And then we have to think, okay, what is the identity? Who is the serpent? Obviously, this serpent is some kind of snakish creature, right? And he's, he's crawling around on his belly, right? And, and he's talking to Eve. Now, well, that's odd. Is it? I mean, Eve hadn't been around very long, and she didn't know what normal was yet, right? How do we know that this is odd? She just, there's a talking serpent. Okay, those talk too. Cool. It would be odd if it happened to me and you. Talking donkey would be pretty odd too, and that happens a little later, right? So don't press the text and start asking questions that the text hasn't answered. Who is this serpent? Is it, is it the fallen angel, Lucifer, who is, the, who is Satan or, uh, or the devil? Is it uh, just another fallen angel who fell with him because a third of the stars? And you go into all of these things that some of you have studied and thought, thought through and you have answers for, you think. But at this point, this text doesn't even raise those questions. Okay? So let's not go there. Let's ask the text, what are you trying to teach me? Rather than coming to the text saying... I have demands that you must teach me, right? What are you trying to teach me? So let's subject ourselves to the text. Um, 
I'm not going to get into the origin of the serpent or the identity of the serpent, but what we do learn here is the strategy of the serpent. So let's look at some of that. Um, before we do that, uh, there, there are three things we're going to look at in, under that heading, the strategy of the serpent. First, the serpent twists the word of the Lord. Then he contradicts the word of the Lord. And then he distorts the word of the Lord. First, he twists the word of the Lord. And, and how does he do that? I'm going to take you back to chapter 2, verse 16, real quick. In chapter 2, verse 16... We read this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in 16, he says, he says You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right? Did you, did you hear how he said that? You may surely eat of every tree but this one. Do you see the freedom that God is giving to Adam and Eve here? To Adam at this point. Do you see the freedom that he's granting them? The liberty that he's granting them with his creation? All of it is yours. You may eat of any of it except for this one tree. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? All of it is yours. This is very liberating, very uh, gracious, and very good. What does the serpent say? Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, he didn't say that at all. You're twisting his words, right? And so let's learn, first of all, that the way temptation works and the way sin works, the way our enemy works to try to drive us into and towards sin is first to twist the word of God. God had clearly said, you, you can eat of any tree. And, and, the, and the way the serpent says it is the exact opposite. Did he say that you shall not eat of any tree? No. He gave us liberty to eat of any tree except for this one. And, and she tries to answer the question right, but we'll get to that in a minute. She missed it just a little bit. But the next thing that, that always happens, I think, with, with the serpent, with evil, with temptation in general, is the word of God gets twisted, and then, then the next step is to contradict the word of God. Look at verse 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 17 again. Not 16 this time, but verse 17, he says, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Remember, this is God speaking. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is what God says. God's, God basically says, if you, there's, there's this one tree, this tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of this tree, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The creator of all things says, don't eat this one, all right? I, I don't know about you, but um, it'd be hard not to trust the creator of all things, right? He probably knows what he's talking about. He did create it all out of nothing, right? Um, but the serpent completely and utterly contradicts the word of the Lord. Chapter 3. Verse 4. After the woman gives an answer, 
chapter 3, verse 4, the serpent says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. You will not surely die. The Word of God is constantly and forever under attack. And the way we're led into sin is first someone may or you may or culture may twist some of the truths of Scripture, confuse it a little bit, uh, turn it on its head, make it sound like it says that it doesn't, make it sound like it says something that it doesn't really say. And then once you've gotten comfortable with the twisting of the Scriptures, once you've gotten comfortable with the twisting of the truth, the twisting of the truth becomes so confusing, right? Because, wait, I heard it said that we're not to eat. Now I'm hearing that we can eat. Now I'm, I'm confused, right? Wait, you're saying I can't eat of any of the trees, but I thought he said we could eat all of them but one. Now, and I begin to lock down because now I don't know which one is true anymore. And so I'm a little bit confused. And so now that the confusion has set in in our hearts and our minds as we struggle with the truth, the confusion sets in and that breaks open this possibility for just a direct contradiction. You shall not surely die. And now that we've allowed this twisted truth, confusion, we become comfortable with contradiction of the truth. It's the subtle, gradual, moving you toward acceptance of sin. Notice, the serpent didn't just come to Eve and say, hey, here, eat this fruit. He didn't do that. She'd be like, no, we're not supposed to eat that. No, he's like, he questions the word. And then after questioning the word, raises doubt in her mind about the word, then he just contradicts the word. And now after contradicting the word, he goes one step forward and just, just totally distorts the word of God. Right? He totally distorts the word of God. Back in, in chapter 2, verse 17, the only thing that, that God said was that if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall, uh, you shall not eat of it, and for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. End of it. That's what he said. You eat, you die. That's what he said. It was that simple. But let's look at what the serpent said in verse 5. He says, God knows, this is chapter 3, verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now we've gone from this twisted truth to this contradicted truth, now we have a complete distortion of the truth and says, no, what God is claiming is that you will die, but the truth is that you won't die, you'll actually become like him. You see where the the strategy of the serpent here is to gradually move the person from, from trusting the word of God to completely just discounting the Word of God and doing what the person wants and appealing to something that the person may desire. You see how, how that movement works? She completely, and he, he was with her, remember, completely trusted the law of God. Then it got twisted and confused. Then just a blatant contradiction. 
now on utter distortion. And it's, it's not that you're going to die. It's that you're going to be like God. So that's the strategy of the serpent. But I want you to also learn this morning the consistency of the serpent. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms continue to operate, I believe, under this same strategy. The same strategy is deployed with Christ himself when he is in the wilderness. You may remember he was in the wilderness for 40 days, right? And he's fasting and the Satan comes before him and tempts him in three ways. And what does he do? He tempts his hunger and he says, you know, you, you, could, you could turn these stones into bread, right? At your word. The word says of you that you could do this, do this, and be satisfied. So, and, and Jesus answers him with the word. And then, then Satan comes back, takes him to the high cliff, and says, you should, you should throw yourself off because the word says about you that not a bone will be broken. And, not a, and, and he says, but the word also says I shouldn't test the Lord my God. Right? And so you see, the strategy of Satan with Jesus in the wilderness was similar to the strategy of the serpent with Eve in the garden. He was trying to attack the word of God, twist the word of God, distort the word of God to get Jesus to do those things that would appeal to himself. As a matter of fact, he finally takes him to the high place and says, all of this I will give you. He's basically saying, I will make you like God. I will grant you this kingdom. And of course, Jesus kind of straight ahead, it's already mine. But, but I will give you this kingdom. It's the same strategy that... The serpent plays with Eve and with Adam in the garden. I'll make you like God. Appealing to this innate desire that you and I have in us to be something. To have glory, right? To be made great in the eyes of others. Um, it's the same strategy that he deployed with Christ, and it's the same strategy that he continues to deploy with you. Just in everyday, day-to-day life, this is the way sin works. And so my challenge to you in this first segment under the crafty manipulation heading is that you <clears throat> understand the strategy of the serpent, the strategy of sin, the strategy of temptation, such that you do not allow your faith hope, trust, and belief in the Word of God to be manipulated, distorted, or changed, but that you will rest solely and wholly on the Word of God for faith, for practice, for belief, for counsel, for wisdom, for truth. The Word of God is central. And it is the thing that gets attacked. And the moment we set it aside, the moment we set it aside physically, the moment we set it aside in our minds, the moment we stop going to it for counsel, the moment we stop uh, relishing in the beauty of the glory of the excellencies of Christ, the, the, the moment we stop just searching its truths to change our character, the moment we stop depending on it is the moment we turn towards sin. And it may be big life turned towards sin. It may be day-to-day lying, cheating, manipulating others. Whatever it is, 
that happens in your life. Whatever it is that has a hold on you as far as sin is concerned, I can guarantee you that the root and origin of that sin, if you want to ask that question of the text, what is the root and origin of sin? The root and origin of that sin is a mistrust of the Word of God. You see, we want to philosophize and try to understand what God did and how evil came into existence. And and all I can say is that God created all things and all things created by him were good. And when we mistrust his word, sin comes into the world. And when you mistrust his word, sin comes into your life again Again and again. Comes into my life on a daily basis. Because at times I trust myself more than I trust the truth of the word. Praise be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. I'm being set free from that through the sanctifying power of his spirit. But with me seems to be a slow process. I'm utterly dependent on the word to continue its perfect work of sanctification in me. I hope that you are as well. Let's look at the response now. Um, as we move to uh, what I call rebellious indulgence in verse 6. Let's look. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So, so how did we get here? I mean, she, she, she knew the law, she knew the truth, she knew that we weren't supposed to eat from this one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree known as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We weren't supposed, she knew the truth. How did we get here? And I think we got here the same way you and I get to sin most of the time, is she began with entertaining the fault, Right? Look at it in verse 6. She looks at it, right? She saw the tree. She examines it. And she says, hmm. Looks good for food. You see that in verse 6? She saw it. It looked good for food. And so she thinks about it. Uh-oh. <clears throat> The word has been twisted, the word has been distorted and contradicted, and now she's begun to entertain the thought of breaking the law of God. You see that? This is what happens in us. We see something that's appealing. It appeals to some part of our flesh, whether the, the eye or the stomach or some other part of the flesh. It appeal, it's appealing. Maybe it's our pride that it appeals to. I don't know. But... We see something, and in the inward parts of our minds, we contemplate it. Mm, I would like. Wouldn't it be nice? Looks good for food. She began to entertain the thought. And then, then as she began to entertain the thought, she continued uh, a little further along, continuing in verse 6. Not only was it good for food, she says, and that it was a delight to the eyes. Do you see what's happening here? The flesh now is just is, is beginning to, to concentrate on it, right? Okay, it looks good for food. I'm entertaining the thought, but now it's a delight. 
I mean, now it's appealing. It's, it's becoming that thing that's, that's, that's insatiable desire. It's a delight. I, I can't take my eyes off of it. I can't take my mind off of it. All I keep thinking about is this. I'm using general terms because I don't know what the sin is that you struggle with. But you know you struggle this way. This is exactly how the way it works. It looks good for food. It, I mean, it, looks, it won't hurt. It's just this one time. Nobody's here. Nobody will. It's just me. It's not going to hurt anything. Right? And then it becomes, I can't get my mind off of it. It's all I want. It's a delight. I have this insatiable desire. And then what happens next? As she continues to entertain the thought, as we continue in verse 6, She says it became a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So now she's justifying it, right? Isn't this what we do? It looks good. It won't hurt. It's just me. And then then all of a sudden, it's a desire. It's insatiable desire. It's the only thing I can think about. And then finally, it's just, okay, all right, I can't stop thinking about it. So you know what? It's going to improve me anyway. It's going to make me wise. This, is, this would be a good thing to do. It's actually desirable for us to do this. Who cares what God said? I know that this would be good for me to do. God doesn't want me to do this because he knows it would help me. That's basically where she's come. It's desirable to make me wise. And so after, after going through this process of entertaining the thought of, of realizing I, it's probably not going to hurt anything to, to insatiable desire, to self-justification, she partakes of the fruit. Now, men, don't you dare, don't you dare condemn the woman for the fall. It's very clear in the text that Adam was with her and Adam ate. And it's very clear in the New Testament that we will talk about next week when we talk about the implications of the fall, that it is in Adam's fall that we sin all. Jesus is the second Adam, not the second Eve. All right? We are guilty. All of us. So how did, how did she get there? What, what did she do? I mean, the, the law of God was clear, right? It was a simple thing. Here's this tree. Don't eat of that one or you'll die. Now let's go on about our merry way. What opened herself up to that type of thinking? Well, um, it goes back to our view of the Word of God and how we we use it. But let's look back at chapter um, chapter 2, verse 17 again. And let's see what she did. In chapter 2, verse 17, God had said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Pretty straightforward. But what did she say that God said? Chapter 3, verse 3. The servant has tempted her. He's asked her the probing question. You know, did he say that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? And, and she almost gets it right. But she says, I'll start in verse 2. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She got it right, that part, verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That is the one in the middle of the garden. That's the one designated as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She's gotten it right so far. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
Did God say that? She added something. And this is what we tend to do sometimes. And I want you to see the danger of it. Because we do it in a way we think is good. But I want you to see the danger of it. You know, uh, the, the law of God lays down a, a certain law. Do not eat of this tree. And what we do, because we're so holy, because we're so good, and because we want to be so right, we will add to that to keep ourselves from doing it, right? We'll say, okay, God said don't eat of this tree. So to make sure that I don't eat of this tree, I'm going to say don't touch that tree, right? Don't touch it. If you touch that tree, you're going to die, right? And so it gets ingrained in my mind now, if I touch that tree, I'm going to die. Because that's my new law that I've added on top of God's law. What does the serpent do? I, you know, I don't know how all this went down. I don't, I don't you know, I, I, this text gives us what the text gives us, but I'm assuming she had to touch it before she ate it. And if she really believed that if touching the fruit, she would surely die the moment she touched it and she didn't die, she had confidence in the word of the serpent. Oh, I shall not surely die. She eats. We are always adding to the law of God, aren't we? It's called legalism. The Pharisees did it in the New Testament. You know, they're supposed to rest on the Sabbath day. And so what did they do? They piled up all these laws about the amount of weight you could carry, right? To try to prove their righteousness. And in today's age, we may not have rules about how much weight we can carry, but we set up all sorts of laws of righteousness for ourselves as well. And we have these checklists that we'll go through, and we're not religious enough if we're not checking all the boxes every week, right? When we add to the law of God, even though we may think we're doing it to uphold our righteousness, what we're really doing is setting ourselves up to get comfortable with sin. You see, she was comfortable when she held the fruit in her hand, but she hadn't sinned yet. But Phil's like, well, I didn't die when I held it. And we open ourselves up to sin. Can we, can we just agree to just stick to the word? I mean, let's just trust the word of God because he's wise. Let's just trust the word of God because it's true. Let's just trust the word of God because in it we find our joy and happiness in Christ. You don't have to add to that. Christ is enough. And so, as we continue the, the rebellious indulgence, so after she understands that it's desirable and after she understands that she hasn't died yet, um, uh, she indulges in the fruit that she's been told not to eat of. And, and this is an act of rebellion. Let's just go ahead and include Adam, right? This is an act of rebellion against the law of God. I'm not going to unpack that much right now. I have a whole week to unpack that next week. You have to be back next week. I didn't add that law to the Word of God. I'm just making that up. You have to be back next week, all right? Because next week is critically important as we understand the implications of this fall. But, but Suffice it to say, it is a rebellious act against the law of God. 
and it is an act that has uh, implications that uh, span from Adam to us today, that span from the Garden of Eden to uh, the San Andreas Fault, that spans uh, from, um, in, my, in my understanding, spans from uh, the, the soil upon which we walk uh, to the surfaces of uh, planetary uh, um, objects in our sky, in our solar system, in our galaxy, and in our universe. Um, the impact of the fall uh, impacted all of creation. We'll get into that next week because of this rebellious act. We see the initial impact immediately, though, in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Do you feel the weight of that? you feel the sadness of this? Um, real quickly, what this indicates is truly a birth of knowledge. Yes, their eyes were opened. And suddenly it's beginning to sound like, hey, the servant was right. It is just going to make you wise and make you know the difference between good and evil. Well, did you know that this now knowledge that they have of good and evil immediately pointed towards themselves, right? And they understood not only now that they know the difference between good and evil, but now the, 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 the death of their own innocence has occurred. And they, they indicate this by the fact that they recognize their nakedness and respond with shame before one another. Now this, this beautiful creation which God had created that was good now responds in shame and feels the need to hide sin. Because they had become knowledgeable of good and evil. This knowledge is not head knowledge. This knowledge is experiential knowledge. They now know what it means to sin. To experience sin. And the death of their innocence has occurred. And in this day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, has come to fruition. Because now, in this moment, they are completely and utterly spiritually dead. And we will see that as they are cast out of the garden, away from the presence of the Lord, because of their spiritual death. And what do they do? As they have this shameful response, they've had this birth of knowledge and this death of innocence, and then they begin with this struggle of restoration. Immediately, what does man do? Immediately, when they recognize they've done something wrong, they recognize they sin before God, they try to do things themselves to make it right, and they make them themselves some fig leaf clothing and try to cover themselves. Not only to hide themselves, but try to make themselves presentable again before God to hide their sin, to hide themselves so that they can be made righteous in his sight. This is what we do with sin, isn't it? We find ourselves twisting the word of God. You remember all the stuff that came before and distorting the word of God. And then we fall into sin because we've led away from the word of God. And we trust ourselves more than we trust the word. We sin, then we feel guilty, then we feel shame, and we try to justify and make it up and make it better by our own might. Nothing's changed. We still do this in and of our own strength. I'm going to race through that part, and I'm going to come now. I cannot preach the sermon on the fall, the fact of the fall. I mean, that, that's it, right? That's the fact. These are the facts. We have fallen. 
Adam and Eve sinned in the garden um, by following this deception. They sin in the garden. I can't preach it without fast-forwarding through the cursings that come. We'll, we'll deal with those next week, but we have to go to verses 21 through 24. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, you see the man who tried to make for himself clothing, but then in verse 21 it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And so we see here a gracious provision already. In Genesis chapter 3, man has sinned, man has fallen, and we have set the whole creation on this course towards rebellion and this course towards sin. And suddenly, at the very beginning of that, God gives us this beautiful foreshadowing of the sacrificial system that will be put in place by Moses, right? We have this beautiful foreshadowing of the, of the uh, sacrificial system where, where there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Where did God get these skins, right? To make animal skins for them to be clothed. He had to kill an animal to do so. And so there was the shedding of blood and he makes for them clothing that they may clothe themselves and cover their shame. And so this is God's gracious provision. Notice it is not restoration completely. It is not reconciliation completely. It is not the undoing of the fall at all. We are still fallen. We are still sinful. But God, instead of just, well, God graciously and lovingly and compassionately provides for them clothing. They tried to do it themselves and it wasn't good enough. You try to cover your own sin all the time, it's not good enough. God must act in the provision of grace to cover sin. And so this this act of God here, very early on in Genesis, shows us the inadequacy of our own attempts to cover our sin. And we must learn that lesson. We are not adequate to cover our own sin. Not only does it show the inadequacy of man's attempts, but it indicates that the Lord must provide a sacrifice. Right here in Genesis, we have this foreshadowing of the sacrificial system, but it's also a looking way forward to the fact that God will provide a sacrifice that will cover sin. Right here in Genesis, we see a picture of Christ. And then the thing that God does um, that is disciplinary, it is um, a result of their sin. It, it, it is deserved because of their fallenness. And, and we see it as discipline and we see it that way. But we must also understand that it is a gracious prevention for them. And let's, let's look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from his garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way 
to the tree of life. It is a disciplinary act that God carries out. He expels them from the garden. He removes them from his holy presence. He cannot now be in this day-to-day conversation with them because they are fallen and they have sinned and sin cannot enter into the presence of a holy God. And so he expels them from the garden. He removes them from all of the glorious benefits of the perfection of the Garden of Eden and they are removed and it sounds like maybe it's a little much, right? God, that's a little over the top. You've, you've kicked them out of the... But what God is doing here is a gracious protection of them because you see there was also the tree of life in the garden. And if one was to eat of this, we understand from God's words, they would have lived forever in that state. They would have lived forever in a fallen and sinful state. And so God graciously says, lest they also eat of the tree of life and live forever, we must expel them, prevent them, so that they do not live forever in this fallen state because we have a plan, a plan from before the world began to provide redemption for mankind. And they cannot get trapped eternally living in this fallen state because the plan is that they die and be raised again in Christ and live forever in a glorified state, not in a fallen state. And so, spoiler alert, all right? If you haven't read the book, I'm about to spoil it for you. I apologize. But I'm going to race to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. I'm just going to read it because I'm already out of time. But you see what's just happened. You see the fact of the fall. You see what's occurred. Listen. Then the angel, this is John the Apostle, in his vision of the heavens and the heavenly places, he's, he's writing for us the end of that. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the city of of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and no longer will there be any accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. You know what I'll learn from this? There's beauty in the symmetry of the scriptures, right? There's beauty. You realize the Bible was written over thousands of years by many different authors in different ages, in different places, in different historical settings. Then their writings were compiled together by the early church and argued over what belongs and what doesn't. Then they decided how they would organize those all under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, all for our benefit. And now we hold in our hands today the finished product, the closed canon of Scripture. And in Genesis chapter 3, we have us being expelled from the tree of life. And in Revelation 22, we're invited to partake of it. Only. An almighty creator of all things, God of the universe, could use so many people over so much time to write such a beautiful book. Love it. Cherish it. Don't let it be twisted 
contradicted or distorted in your mind. And we'll learn that though we do fall, and though we are fallen, Christ Jesus our Lord has made provision and protection for us for all of eternity in the sacrifice of His body, the pouring out of His blood that we may enjoy Him forever. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that um, when we submit to it and just trust it, we learn about ourselves. We do learn that we are fallen, and we're going to learn more about the implications of that next week. But we know now that, that it, just the Genesis story, it tells us that, that we have fallen, that we have sinned against You, and we've rebelled against You, and we indulge in sin ourselves. But God, we praise You and we thank You that through Your Son, Christ Jesus, You've made provision for us in grace, and You have protected us for all of eternity if we trust in him and what he did on the cross and in his resurrection for our benefit then we too will be joined with you forever in eternity and be able to enjoy the fruit of the tree of life thank you i pray that this will rest heavy on the hearts of your people and that we will be challenged to just love your word we pray this in christ's holy name Amen.